Do we manufacture addicts? Welcome to the Real Talk Recovery Podcast with the Therapy Brothers. We're brothers, we're therapists, and we know recovery. Bring your stories, your questions, your successes with real recovery. We manufacture addicts. Interesting question. Um, can't wait to see where this one goes. Yeah, this will be uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, before we dive into the answer to that question, I just wanted to remind those listeners of the betrayed, the addicted, and the expert that if you're listening to this episode on that feed, the betrayed, the addicted, and the expert, that's awesome. Thank you for listening. Um, but I would encourage you to go over to iTunes and type in Therapy Brothers or Real Talk Recovery and subscribe to our actual show. Um, the, this feed, The Betrayed, The Addicted, and The Expert, it may last forever, it may not, but the Real Talk Recovery Therapy Brothers podcast will go on and on for a long time. So please hop on over to iTunes and subscribe over there. All right, let's dive in. We got Corey back with us again. Um, and uh, I'm Corey. I'm just going to kind of let you introduce your your question, kind of where you're coming from with it. Maybe give a little bit of background of your own experience, and we'll just go from there. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me back on. Um, my name is Corey McGill, um, recovering sexaholic, and I've been thinking a lot since our last conversation, where my wife and I got on and talked to you guys about masturbation and lust, and immediately started thinking back on my own recovery journey. Um, and it's led to, I, I guess I have three questions, but really that, that one, you know, do we, the society, manufacturer addicts? Um, I guess just some background on this. So a little bit of my story, which I'm planning on recording. So maybe I'll give you guys a link to that and you can stick it in the show notes later. That'd I don't be know. Awesome. But um, yeah, so I was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as is what I I'm imagining to be and what I have learned more or less without much exception is typical is at some point in time in my life when I was a young kid I was exposed to pornography the way it was exposed back before YouTube was really a big deal there was a lot of websites out there where you could watch like little animations and things and I'll just say some stuff for the audience to maybe kind of understand what I'm saying like if, if you've ever heard of Homestar Runner oh yeah you know what I'm talking about I used to watch Homestar Runner Oh yeah. And yeah, you know, it's hilarious. Yeah. Back in the day, the internet was full of all sorts of silly things like this. And as a young kid growing up with the internet being this new thing, you know, it was a cool thing to do. And so me and my friends would often get on there and watch Homestar Runner or watch other things, or we'd play, I think it was like mini, mini clip or mini board game.com or something like that, all sorts of different things. And, you know, eventually we stumbled upon a more adult themed version of this website or these types of websites that were cropping up all over the internet and that was my first exposure after my initial like exposure at school to pornography of like looking at pornography it was something that was a shared experience it was something we laughed about oh look you know she's not wearing any clothes and it's just a cartoon person whatever and you know through that 
I, I learned a couple things. I learned that one, if I wanted to fit in, I couldn't sit there and be that good guy. I had to, you know, laugh at the jokes. I had to do all these things. And so that brought me that sense of belonging. But eventually I broke down. I'd been looking at pornography. I'd masturbated a few times and I'd broken down. And I remember it was the middle of a scripture study. And I'm talking to my parents about this and I'm telling them what's going on. They're, oh, you know, we're so sorry that no, that's bad. We shouldn't be looking at that stuff. And immediately I'm feeling like a horrible kid. Like I'm just this unlovable human being. But my parents say, you know, hey, let, let's go talk to the bishop. Let's make this right. And so I was like, okay. And I, I can see in hindsight that my parents are trying to help me go through the repentance process, the change process to purge this from myself and to say, it's okay. Like, let's move forward. You're not a bad kid. But that's not how I internalized it. I internalized it with shame. I internalized it with, you know, what I've done is so wrong and, you know, it's enticing and it's exciting, but it's just so wrong. And then going and seeing the bishop, my bishop was an amazing man, um, championship shotgun shooter. So I wasn't nervous. Oh, that's at all. cool. <laughs> oh yeah. He, he went to the Olympics a couple of times, I think really awesome. Um, and a great guy. And in hindsight, looking at the conversation that we had, the two of us in his office, you know, being told that, yeah, this is a bad thing. It's a poison. It's been, it's been taught that this is a poison. It can ruin your marriage. You cannot look at this. Don't do this again. And kind of in, in short terms, slap on the wrist. Let's not do this again. And I need you to go to church this Sunday. Don't take the sacrament. You need to feel this pain. You need to feel this remorse. And I understand where that was coming from. But in hindsight, there just wasn't, in my opinion, enough love to counterbalance the shame. There wasn't enough. This is okay. This is a natural thing that you're going to do as a kid. And it's acceptable that this has occurred to a degree. And let's talk about where that line is, you know, and I, I honestly don't know if my bishop knew where that line was or any of that, you know, and wash, rinse, repeat over the years. And I had another bishop and, you know, more reaching out. But the shame that I felt drove me more and more and more into secrecy. And this, this message of, you know, hey, guys, perverts do this. Or, hey, guys, you know, this is bad. If you do this, you're going to end up like a bum on the street. Um, these messages that I was taught by youth group leaders, bishops, sometimes my parents, and just people at large in society it made me over and over internalize the message that what I was doing was just the shameful behavior that I should not be proud of for one, but should also just not even mention that I ever have done it. Just don't like bury it, bury it deep. And that's what I did. And that led to my addiction becoming worse and worse and worse and becoming more and more trapped. Now that I'm working recovery, I've been sober thanks to God, thanks to the steps and thanks to just working and, you know, speaking on, speaking out about this and everything. I've been sober since this last Christmas, right? My sobriety date is the 26th of December. And we've gone through so much change in the last, I don't know how long it is, like six, eight months, something like that. I just feel so different. And so it's amazing to me. I still know that I am a sexaholic in recovery. And I'm only, you know, a click away on my phone from slipping back into this, but my attitude has changed. And so my main question of, you know, do we, the society manufacture these addicts? I guess it really just kind of stems from, you know, are we really teaching people the right message when they come out about this? You right. know, 
Right. Excellent question. Tyler, do you want to take start with this? Yeah, this is this is a really good topic. It's actually, Corey, this is actually a topic that's currently being researched right now to a certain extent. Oh, and cool. Yeah. So so some of the some of the research that's actually kind of coming out right now is the question as to whether or not labeling yourself as an addict is helpful to actually getting sober from an addiction. And the research is showing right now, the early research is showing that the label of an addict isn't actually helpful <clears throat> to someone who's trying to work recovery because, because the label of addict also has certain messages associated to it. And so if I label myself as an addict, which then means addicts are bad, which means I'm hopeless, which means I'll always be an addict, which means I'll never, I can never get better. Then, then of course you stay stuck in it. And, and the answer to your question would actually be, yes, we are manufacturing more addicts. Um, I happen, I happen to use the label, like for myself, my own recovery, I happen to use my addict self or parts of my addict. Um, but I, but I use that term, not in a defining all encompassing. That's who I am. I, I use that term more in, in terms of how to sort of encapsulate and describe the pieces of me that I'm trying to change. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's really at the crux of this is it is how are we viewing the work that we're doing and the labels that we're using? And if there's shame attached to it, then the shame itself is the thing that's keeping us bound. And it's going to continue to cycle us through the things that we're trying to climb out of. Hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. You say that. Cause I mean, I sat there and I think about this all the time and as a sexaholic in recovery is what I like to say. Um, you know, I can see from your answer, Tyler, like you've really, you have a healthy internalization of what you mean when you label yourself. Right. And I've, I've learned to do that myself as well. That's why I like to say I'm a sexaholic in recovery. Um, and I've had this conversation with accountability partners, with friends, with family, with my wife, where they say to me, you know, just the other night, my wife, she's like, I don't really like it when you call yourself a sexaholic. Like that kind of, I don't think that really encapsulates who you are. And so we talked about what the definition was in my mind versus hers and things. But that was actually one of my questions, like, should we even label ourselves? But if so, how should we label ourselves? And I think you've already kind of answered that. But, you know, I'm just, I'm curious about what you guys think about labels in general, because I know that if you tell a kid he's a punk, if you tell him he's a rebel, he will act like a punk. He will act like a rebel. That's exactly what I did. That's exactly what all my friends did. So we went and blew stuff up and ran from the cops and all these other things, you know? So you take a, you take a 12, 13 year old kid and this is like our generation. This is, you take a 12, 13 year old kid who's really active in a church. There's a, a rigid belief system and you throw pornography everywhere you know, on phones, computers, whatever, and have that kid actually sit in front of a bishop and confess his, his awful sins about looking at the pornography, it, you're saying that creates the label. It creates the label of, you know, you might be an addict, you might be a pervert, you might be a sinner, you might be... And so then the kid starts to internalize, well, I'm trying to repent here, but that's what I am, I'm bad. And, and then, mm. and then the, and then it just goes on from there. That's kind of what you're saying, right, Corey? Yeah. Yeah. More or less. Yes. I got a story about that. If I can, if I can tell it, Brandon, um, 
I, I've since gone back and listened to this, but I remember I was probably about 16, which would have made you 15 and, and our brother Rex about 13. And we actually went with our father to what we, what at the time was called a priesthood session, which was a men's meeting. And we were sitting there listening to the speaker and the speaker happened to be the leader of our church. And he gave a talk on, on all of the ills of society. And he named a couple of things and he named gambling and he named pornography and he named drugs and alcohol and as he was going through naming gambling and pornography and drugs and alcohol, the, 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 the meeting was dark and I looked down the aisle and I was sitting here, I was sitting here, Brandon was next to me and then Rex was next to me like in order. And as he, as he started to talk, all three of us started to shrink further and further down in our seats. And I remember specific words. I remember our church leader, when he got to pornography, he said, it will destroy you it is filthy and salacious. And I didn't know what salacious meant, but I knew that the word sounded really bad. And, uh, and, and I remember feeling like I was filthy, like I was salacious. I've since gone back just this year and listened to that very same talk. And he never once said, Tyler, you're a dirt bag. He said, pornography is filthy and salacious. But to a kid listening to that mm. and going through those processes, I was defining myself as that. And that's where the label started to come in. And that's where shame started to take root to say, no, this isn't a problem that everybody kind of has to wrestle with and go through. This is you. And that's the problem. You know, it's funny. I tell this story. Um, I, I, I turned 40 a couple of years ago. I went on this big trip with my buddies. And uh, one of my buddies talks about how you know, he asked his dad for a blessing to stop getting erections <laughs> uh, so, so that God will help him stop getting erections. Um, so now we're 40 fast forward. We're 40 and we're, we're, we're hanging out. We go, we went down to Brazil actually, and we're all laughing about how we all were masturbating and we're all like, you know, like, th like the reality of it is now out in the open of, mm -hmm. we're 40 year old guys and guess what but as as those teenage boys in their very rigid belief systems we, it was secrecy and shame that that's mm -hmm. that's how we dealt with it and 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 it's really fascinating to me when you take that step out now to say okay hang on here what are we doing um when when i talked to valerie hammaker on the podcast a few weeks ago i really it was bold what she said what she said is the porn industry and the church together are equally complicit in creating shame and addiction. Now that's pretty bold when you're, when you're throwing the church in with the porn industry, right? But if you really think about what she's saying, she's saying, look, what, it, it's, it's that whole family structure idea where if you, if you take chaos and you take rigidity, those are two extremes. Chaos is watch all the porn you want, do whatever you want sexually. Rigidity is the, the church or the, the really rigid belief systems. Don't be sexual. Don't be you. There's a system. Fall into that system. Mm. You put those two things together, you got a shame machine. And do you manufacture addicts that way? I would absolutely say yes. That is a, a, a something. Now, I don't like labeling people as addicts either. I, I, I use the term somebody who struggles with an addiction. It takes mm -hmm. a lot more to say it. It's a lot longer. But that system together, Corey, in my opinion, having done this for so long and treating sex addiction in Utah County, like I am busy for a reason. 
Yeah. Well, it's so. interesting too. I mean, you know, I attend every Tuesday night, the SAL 12 step group for sexaholics. And, you know, it's fascinating to me. I get off those meetings sometimes and my heart just goes out so hard to these guys that are really stuck in that shame. Cause I mean, my, my last question, it was does shame fuel acting out more than lust. I believe that to be true. I was curious more for your guys thoughts. I think you've already shared them, um, but feel free to add more to that if you'd like, but you know, thinking about how we read these books. I mean, we, we have these mantras, work, 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 you know, whatever it is. And the, there's a whole culture around what we're doing, right? There's a culture for the people that are listening to us talk right now. We're recovering addicts, we're sexaholics, we're drug addicts, we're, we're just addicts, right? And, and I think that, that that longing to belong can sometimes work against us, even when we're working our programs, yes. even when we're in the thick of our meetings, because we want to sit there and belong. And so we also say, yeah, I'm a sexaholic too. And then we hear these horrible stories. And I guess maybe transitioning a little bit outside of my questions, because this you guys are making me think about the conversation I have with my wife. But, but, but Corey, but, but Corey, I want to yeah, cut off for just a second about what you're saying. In some of those meetings, it's almost like noble to um, show up weak and, and show up in your shame. It's noble. Oh, I'd agree to that. It's, it's noble to not be sexual. It's noble to not be masculine. It's a, it's a good thing to just kind of be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm bad and, and I'm, I, I'm trying to be sober and I've been sober for this long. And, and when you get a bunch of guys together doing that together and supporting each other in not owning their masculinity and not really stepping into who they are sexually, um, it, it creates that that what you're talking about right yeah well i'm i'm curious for what you're, you're talking about a little bit here because maybe you're maybe you're going into the same thing i wanted to talk about stepping into your masculinity kind of owning your decisions kind of kind of deal the thing that i think is so interesting i really strive when i go to meetings to be the positive voice in the room and to reinforce the message that like guys like welcome you're now a recovery you're now working these steps. Your lowest low doesn't have to keep sinking lower and lower. You can just right. say, that was my lowest low. Now I'm attending these meetings. I'm saying goodbye to this kind of life. And I'm now going to turn on this switch where I'm now thinking about things positively. I'm thinking about things saying, I am a recovery. I'm getting through this. You know, like my very first experience, I'll never forget with 12 Steps was through the addiction recovery program. I met the most amazing person. He's this really awesome guy. His name is Todd. And he shared this story, a really personal story for him. And it was during the step six and seven, you know, and step six and seven, just to kind of summarize for the podcast, you know, we become willing and, and, and say, I'm ready to remove these, these character weaknesses. I'm ready to purge myself of this, you know, fallacy or whatever it is however you want to phrase it but you know these character weaknesses these defects and i'm ready to turn it over to god and let it go and it's so intriguing as a christian who believes in jesus christ and believes in the atonement and believes that he suffered all those long years ago for everything i'm going to do wrong tomorrow i have to be willing to let him suffer for those things 
by He's, turning to him and saying, please take this from me. And Corey, I want to, I want to be positive now. I want to Corey, look at this and label myself as someone in recovery. Corey, is your, is your, in this context, what you're saying is your sexuality, a character defect? No, no, not at all. And that's not what I'm saying. Sorry if that was misconstrued. No, no, that's not what like, I'm hearing you say, but I think that's what is oftentimes oh, brought to the yes, table in those groups. Yes, totally, totally. You know, I'm this pervert. I can't, I can't stop looking at women's legs and boobs. It's like, well, welcome to humanity. You have attraction to women. This just happened. Right. Like, like I'm, now, I'm so, but, but now you sound like a justifying addict. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> I do. But honestly, I really do feel if I sat on the curb and I might've shared this with you guys in our last episode, but if I sat down on the curb and watched beautiful women walk by while waiting for my wife to come out of the store. And if Christ was on one side and, and God was on the other, and I saw a beautiful woman walk by, they'd know what I'm thinking. And I do not think that they would turn to me and say, shame on you. How dare you have attraction to one of my beautiful daughters? Right. I don't think right. he would. I, I think he but, would but, turn to me and say, but, but you're hang right, on, she is but hang beautiful. Hang on, Corey, let me play devil's advocate. Aren't you a married sure. man? I am a married haven't, man. Haven't you made commitments to your wife? Yep. Aren't, aren't you going to be I'm faithful? exactly right. Aren't you going to be faithful to her? Yeah, because that's the thing, like, God looks at the intentions of our hearts, yes. not at our actions. To look at a woman, which is most of the time out of my control, right? I go out and about, I live in the world. I can't sit there and prescribe all these nets of safety. Um, I have to be willing to stretch. I have to be willing to grow. Um, and through that stretching and that growth, I'm able to face what was once triggering and super lust thought evoking and I'm able to look at it and say pick it apart what am I feeling what are my needs now I'm going to look at meeting those needs in a healthy way so if I'm looking at this woman walk by and all of a sudden I'm thinking about sex the wrong way to go about meeting my needs is to objectify to lust to fall into that trap of shame and saying, yeah, like, let's go for it. And then feeling the shame and saying, Ooh, I want to avoid that. And then white knuckling and all these other addict behaviors, but the right way to go about scratching my itch, so to speak, I'm starting to see is to say, okay, who am I? Mm -hmm. If I don't give into this shame and forget about that, because remember, that's the first thing that Satan tried to do to Adam and Eve, right? That's what we read about in Genesis in the beginning. Like they were not ashamed. And then Satan comes and says, Hey, you're naked, run away, get out of here. Be ashamed of who you are. Yeah. You know, if, if we don't give into that shame and say, okay, well, this is what I'm feeling. I can look at myself as a married man and say, whoa, I'm already married to a babe. Okay. What am I going to do to meet my sexual fantasy? I don't think sexual fantasy is a sin. I think it has its purpose as long as it's kept within the boundaries that God gave me to do it correctly. And if I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, Ooh, you know, maybe I'll, do the dishes when I get home, take out the trash, maybe get a babysitter, put on a candlelit dinner, all this stuff, sweep my wife off her feet. All of a sudden, the woman walking by is doing my wife and me a service by kicking in the juices in my brain and getting me to connect more richly and fully with my wife. Yeah. And I, I love that. I'm starting to experience that in my own life. And I see these guys at these meetings who are sitting there repeating this mantra of, I am an addict, I am an addict, I am an addict, woe is me. I mean, how many times have I heard this phrase in a meeting where these guys are sitting there riding the shame train saying, until I am safely dead. Have you guys ever heard that phrase? 
Uh, no, I need to explain that a little bit. No, no, but I hate it. This is crazy. (laughs) So I hear, I've heard this phrase in meetings in the addiction recovery program, in meetings in SAL, where people talk about how, you know, yep, I'm just, I'm working one day at a time until I am safely dead. (sighs) What a horrible and non-growth mindset. And not trusting yourself. Yeah, not trusting yourself, not trusting God saying, yep, I'm going to be stuck with this forever. And the reason I brought up Todd the other day or the other minute or two ago was because Todd, he shared his message about step six and seven. And it was a horrifying experience. And someone died because of his action. But he said, I tell you what, today, right now, I don't have those pulls anymore. I don't feel these urges anymore. I am healed. And I'm here to share my message of hope with you. And I think that that is the key. That's the crucial element. Like I see in my meetings that I attend, I see two breeds of addicts. I see the addicts that are stuck in the shame. They're stuck in the label of being an addict. And I see the ones that have accepted that they're an addict and have said, I want recovery. And they're willing to pay any price. They're willing to do these things the book says, but they kind of more or less grow out of that mentality of the label, grow out of the mentality of, I'm not going to allow this system, even though it's a noble one, the 12 steps is like one of the most noble systems I've ever seen but they're going to grow out of the system that is manufacturing their relapses. Corey, I'll go so. ahead, Tyler. No, I was just going to say it's you're, I think you're, you're hitting on some things and talking so fast. A lot of people don't quite pick up what you're Sorry. saying. No, no, it's excellent. Everything, everything you said is excellent, but I think some people would hear what you're saying and say, you know, grab the pitchforks and the torches and let's go burn down the, the essay program or <laughs> let's, you know, and that's, that's not what you're saying. And what it's I, not. What, what, I'm, what I'm getting at here is, is the principles inside the 12-step, if you actually look at the principles, are a working, living, breathing mm-hmm. process of, of what you would call repentance. They're wonderful. They're amazing principles. It's the culture of shame in some of those places and the way that the label of addict gets used as a place to hold them bound. That's the issue. If, yeah. if, if somebody goes to a 12-step meeting and, and, and says... I'm an addict, but they mean it in these terms. When they say addict, they mean I have a problem. It's a big enough problem that I need to work on it and I'm responsible to work on it. Then the, the label of addict is fine. But yeah. if, if I go and I'm say, I'm so-and-so and I'm an addict and they mean I'm a dirt bag who can't stop touching my penis and I don't think I'll ever get better. And my wife deserves somebody better than me. Um, that's, not going to be healthy. And that's where the manufacturing of the addict comes in. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, uh, I see this in, in my work with things like, and it's what, what Tyler's, what you guys are talking about, you know, couples doing nightly check-ins mm-hmm. where he shows up to confess all of his horribleness to her for the day. Um, where he was attracted to this girl on the train, or he had this one thought that he had to deal with, and he had, and and she's kind of in the fear and control cycle, and he's in the shame spiral of, I want to show you that I'm good. I want to, and and I want to, I want you to 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 answer my question of masculinity and tell me that I'm good enough, and and what happens? Couples do that for a long time, and no safety is ever created in that relationship. It doesn't create safety. And how he's showing up is, I want to be a good boy. I want, I'm a bad boy. I'm an addict and I want to be a good boy. And it's interesting. I, I, I run a, for a while I ran a advanced recovery group 
and there was like 15 guys in there. And uh, we did this activity where it was like, hey, come, let's make a bonfire. Let's surrender something that's not serving us anymore. Bring whatever you want to burn that night. And like eight of the 15 brought all of their SAL 12-step recovery, I mean, books and books of writing. And, and the 12 steps is of God. It's amazing. I love it. And the culture in some of those. So they came and basically said, I'm not working recovery this way anymore. I love myself now. I trust myself now. Um, it's like what you were saying about Todd, Corey. It's like, it's like yeah. I, I, I'm okay as a man and I can make mistakes and I can be sexual and I can own my sexuality. My sexuality doesn't automatically equal shame. And, and you know what, if I own that sexuality, I'll be more honest and open with my wife and create more safety with her as opposed yeah. to beat myself down, try to control it, try to subdue it and just tell myself that I'm bad. Right. Well, can we talk to your dynamic that you're talking about between husbands and wives? Like, that's my situation. I know that's not the situation for every addict, but I mean, if I'm honest, like a hundred percent honest, I went to the SAL program. I went to the ARP program because my wife was like breaking down and saying, this is, this is like, we've got to find a solution. I thought, okay, I'll be compliant. I just want to fix my marriage. And I see right. so many guys out there in recovery who are struggling because they just want to fix their marriage too. They just want happiness in their family. And they're like, okay, well, these 12 steps are going to make me a good boy again. But this dynamic that you're talking about, you were talking about how we're spiraling into the shame cycle and women are, what was their cycle again? And the I'm fear curious, and control. You, the fear yeah, and could you control talk, cycle? Like, let's talk more about how the fear and control cycle, how that interacts with someone who's approaching these labels of, you know, oh, here I am in this 12 step and I, I'm an addict and I just want to be a good boy and I need something to validate me and tell me I'm a good boy. Can we talk about the interaction that that has with spouses who are in that fear and control cycle? Because that is, in my opinion, probably so detrimental. Well, ultimately, this, it, it destroys the polarity between the masculine and the feminine. So, and I might be talking over some people's heads, but what happens is when you have a lot of shame and self-rejection and you're rejecting yourself sexually and, and who you are and you're not being honest, then all of a sudden you get into recovery and you start showing up really weak, like it's compliant, trying to get your self-worth from your wife, turning her into your God. Um, and, and she's your sponsor and she's dictating your, all of a sudden she actually takes on masculinity. She takes on, I'm the steady one. I'm the safe one. I'm the one that's going to make sure that you're going to, and what do you know, that doesn't really enliven her femininity. Yeah. And, and so it doesn't enliven the polarity in, in terms of the sexual chemistry and the connection and the safety in the relationship, because now she's in this place of babysitter slash I'm the masculine slash, and, and he's in a state of weakness. And, mm. and ultimately what a woman wants is a steady, strong partner who knows yeah. who he is, right? And, yeah. and, I, and at some of these groups, men in addicts, in quotation marks, are being taught that you're not steady and you're not strong. You're a freaking addict. That's what yeah. you are. And, and so it kills that whole dynamic in a relationship. And, and what it really starts to take, you know, I tell stories all the time of like, you know, just be honest with your wife. Well, sometimes just being honest with your wife is saying something like, honey, I know this is really hard for you. 
but I don't feel comfortable about disclosing whether or not women at church are are attractive or not. That doesn't work for me, right? Mm. Now listen to that. That could trigger her like crazy. Oh yeah, the fear of oh my gosh, is he eyeballing women at church? Yeah. But the weak man who deep in his gut is saying this isn't healthy to to like pick out Sister Smith and Sister Jones and this isn't healthy. The weak man will say, yeah, she's attractive. Yeah, she's not. Yeah, she's, do, do you see that? Mm -hmm. and, and that's and just going to put nails in the coffin. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it just creates more unsafety and, and also yeah. feeds his shame of how horrible he is for having that attraction. And, and, and a healthy man would say, yes, I do have attraction. I'm attracted to some women at, at church. I'm committed to you. I haven't broken any boundaries there with that. And I don't mm -hmm. feel comfortable about going down the line and telling you everybody that I'm attracted to at church. That doesn't work for no. me. Right? I really like what you're saying. Like, I'm attracted to you. I'm loyal to you. Yes, you can you're trust my wife. me, but I'm being transparent and saying, I don't feel comfortable yes. about this because I'm a man and I'm going to own my sexuality. So I, I really like what we've talked about, about labels, because I really do think that this whole manufacturing plant that kicks out addicts, it really is that aspect of people that get stuck with this label and believe the label and live the label. But I do yes. think that in the 12 steps, which I believe is a God-given program, mankind i really do and it's healed me where do we draw that line as addicts coming into the program because the first step is to admit to ourselves and to others like yes my life is unmanageable i am an addict and that finally like removes that burden from this from the addict themselves but then if they continue to believe in that and kick in that and just stir and stir and stir, they're never going to get out of that and move forward into the other steps that really are about growth and all that. So where do we draw that line? So, Corey, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions maybe about this because you referenced it. You, you didn't actually start the 12-step program for the right reasons. Nope. <laughs> right? So, yeah. So, so here you are. <laughs> Here you are, a man yourself who, who started the program to get his wife off his back so that he could look like he was a good man and she could feel like he was going to do something better, but his heart wasn't totally engaged yet. And he mm -hmm. showed up and he grabbed onto those 12 steps and somehow he wrestled with those things and probably felt like he was a dirtbag for a while, but then he made a transition and didn't see himself as a dirtbag anymore. I want you to answer your own question and say, well, how did the shift happen? Like where, where did it go from being, oh, I'm a dirt bag. Well, it, even before that, oh, I better get her off my back to, oh man, maybe I'm a dirt bag to, oh, I'm not a dirt bag. I'm a guy who's growing and these principles actually really work. Like where did the shift happen? No, you're right. That, that's actually a really good question. The phrase a bishop used to get me to go to ARP for the first time was, Corey, when are you going to take this seriously? And I was like, I'll take this seriously. I'll go be compliant. I'll do this. And so I started going. I, I started just working the steps. And, you know, I was this guy who was like, yeah, I'm an addict. I'm a messed up person. And eventually it clicked. And I was like, man, I really am an addict. I'm a messed up person. I think that as I worked the steps and as I talked to people, what I found to be the most valued was a phrase that my therapist actually gave, Jed Anderson. He said, after a few weeks of going to SAL, I was telling him about how it was going. He says, is it working for you? And I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, if it's not doing anything for you, it's not really worth it. 
And I started going to the meetings again, asking myself that question of what is this really doing for me? And I stopped thinking about being compliant for my wife. And I started to really say like, what am I going to do about me? Yeah. And that level of coming to myself and looking at just me and isolating just me and saying, do I really want to be this compliant addict or do I want something okay. different? Uh, and Tyler, I want to take a stab kind of what you're insinuating here, which okay. is, uh, so yesterday, a true story, I, I was in a, it was kind of an empty parking lot and there was a, a dude sleeping in his car with the car on. So mm-hmm. I kind of went over like, what's going on? And the dude was high as a kite um, and he had dried blood all over him and he okay. had all, all this junk in his car and I get talking to him and he's kind of high and uh, he had gotten in a fight with his brother the, the night before. And the truth is, is he did not desire recovery in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, and it would have been good for me, I believe, to drag him into an ER or even a jail and 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 the thing about it is is because at this point his life's on the line and so the external motivation of me trying to get him to a safe place is actually a good thing good job external motivation that's great so a wife compelling a husband to actually work a recovery or a bishop or good job but it's not that won't sustain that won't Mm. create actual real shift and long-term recovery um, and, and Corey, I like what you were just saying, which is after a while you started to realize I either got to do this for me or not do it. Like, and that's when you started to shift into that internal motivation. Yeah. And that's, that's when you actually start to experience real change. Yes. Mm-hmm. I started right. diving into literature and learning and growing and being like, aha, and light bulbs were going off all the time. Right. Sorry, I, I've been no, yeah, I've been trying to create for myself. I, I don't have it finished yet, but I've been trying to create sort of a bar graph on different levels of motivation for my own journey. And I would say that the first big bar graph across my whole life would be shame. And then uh, when listen, I, listen to what Tyler just said. Shame was his motivation. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's so, very common. So from the beginning, even before I wanted to admit there was an issue and before my world blew up, it was shame, 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 shame. After it blew up, bigger shame and fear that my wife would leave me. So do the work. So driven from fear and shame. Do that. I don't do the work so I don't lose my wife. And, and at then, this point, at this point, you're going to school to be a therapist. Yeah. Right? Oh, I'm, I'm in I'm in graduate school to be a marriage and family therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then after it blew up, I'm working in the drug courts, helping people overcome addictions, working my own recovery out of fear and shame that my wife will leave me. And at a certain point, thanks to some really, uh, really good influential people in my life and some spiritual experiences with God, things started to shift. And there became this moment where the fear and the shame started to diminish and possibility started to open up the possibility that I could be a good person, a flawed Mm -hmm. man, a a work in progress instead of an end result and, and a belief that I was actually designed by God to be something. And Corey, you answered the question earlier, and I want to just point it out to our audience at a certain point, you had to look yourself in the mirror and you had to decide who you wanted to be. And, and then you had to go and act with intention based off of who you wanted to be. And I would say that the last piece of the bar graph for me is paired with that intention 
is now a relationship with the higher power that confirms what who your identity is. Creation and purpose is your motivation. So, so now I've got a God who says, Tyler, you're a warrior, you're a teacher, you're a guide, instead of you're a dirt bag, you're never going to get better. Mm. And, and now that intention is I'm going to show up every day and I'm going to read books and I'm going to learn and I'm going to keep getting better. And I'm going to keep chipping away at my weaknesses because that's who God says I am. And that's who I need to be in order to have the best impact on the world that I'm living in. And, yeah. and that's when recovery becomes, so when people hear like, Oh, I'm going to be in recovery the rest of my life. That's miserable. I'm like, no, that's the best thing in the world. Like you get to grow <laughs> the rest of your life. Like you will have something to work on until you die. That's awesome. But it, begs, no. but it begs the question, why are we showing up at these 12-step meetings and saying, I'm an addict, I'm an addict? Why don't we show up at 12-step meetings and saying, I'm a warrior, I'm a champion, I, I am a son of God who struggles with addiction? Well, the reason why, Brandon, is because, is because look at how it's happened, is that we've lived in this world that has manufactured the shame. And so it's, yes. it's the natural tendency that by the time you hit a meeting like that, you're already in that place of energy that says, I'm no good. And so- yes. So it's on us to try to figure out how to change the culture. The culture needs to shift. It perpetuates gotcha. the shame. Exactly. Because we it's need, natural for a guy to show up that way. We need more Corey's out there in these meetings. <laughs> you, we do. You, you can get more of me. No, it's funny. You know, you say that and I have this thought. Compliments. I hated compliments growing up in the thick of my addiction as a teenager. Wow, you're so good at pole vaulting. You got fourth. Yeah. I got fourth in state as a sophomore. It's crazy. You know, people were like, you're amazing. I was like, ah, I'm really not that good. Mm. You know, and as a sexaholic, you know, wow, Corey, what's your secret? Some people message me. I used to say, oh, I, I don't really know. I'd work the steps, I guess. I would befuddledly not take ownership of, yeah, I am a good guy and give into that positivity. And now, you know, when I, when people ask me, I'm like, oh, well, here's what I do, you know, and I'm more than happy to do that. And that's why I keep going to the 12 steps, but I agree. Like you guys are right. The culture needs to shift to say, hey, welcome addict. Do you want to be a recovery? Do you want to be more than a survivor, right? So Corey, I got a challenge for you. Sure. Next SAL meeting, you check in. <laughs> I'm Corey, I'm a champion for truth who struggles with an addiction. I'm Corey, okay. and, I'm a, I'm Corey and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a warrior. <laughs> I'm a warrior and I struggle. I, with I better do it because I don't know if people in my Tuesday night group are going to hear this, but they probably will and say, all right, let's see if we're going to do it. <laughs> it's on, man, if they're listening. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. No, I, I really like what you guys have shared and it's really awesome. I'm excited. I actually submitted two questions for you guys. I know we're almost out of time. Um, I, I scheduled the time to speak with you guys next week um, because I feel like this whole, everything we've talked about today, it's kind of been like this first phase of my recovery. And you mentioned Brandon earlier, you, you did like a, like a higher level recovery group or, you know, second tier uh -huh. level, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's so fascinating to me because I'm, I'm seeing now how, as I'm working my recovery and having these aha moments and turning in and owning my masculinity, owning my sexuality, trying to be a strong man. I'm also seeing my wife become this strong woman yeah. yep. and it's amazing, but man, can it really bring out some insecurities in me sometimes? So I've got some questions for you guys next week, but I really appreciate everything you guys have given me to think about and talk about and express and to be a voice for. It's been awesome. Corey, you're the man. Thanks for coming on again. We really, really yeah, no appreciate problem. you. Yeah, it's fun. I enjoy having talks with y'all. It's nice. For those of you who are listening to this episode, there's a pretty good chance that there's a wide range of emotions going through you right now. 
that's okay. Pause, sift through those things, be curious with those with those feelings that you might be having and ask yourself some of those questions as to why you're choosing to do the things that you do and what labels you're assigning to yourself. So thank you for listening. All right, you guys, if you like this episode, please share it and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.